First of all, let me wish you all a very Merry Christmas. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. <laughs> appreciate that. I, uh, I don't know about you. When you don't have children in the home, you know, Christmas is different, isn't it? It's kind of just, when it's just me and Janet, it's not near as much fun as when we had kids around and everything. I remember when I was a little boy, I was just over the top crazy about Christmas. Uh, we would, um, I couldn't wait for Christmas morning. I would wake up in the middle of the night and actually listen for Santa Claus. And when I would hear him come, I wouldn't dare go in the room for fear that I would screw things up, you know. So I would wait in the hall. I'm, I'm talking two or three in the morning. And I would sit there in the hall until my parents woke up. And, and as soon as they woke up, it was a free-for-all. It was just stuff flying everywhere. We just had the best time. We were not that well off. We didn't have a lot of money per se, but we had a, we always had a really good Christmas. It was a wonderful experience. And I have good memories from that. I have wonderful memories when we had our, our own children at home. Jen and I had, we had, still have pictures of things we went and did together. It was just a lot of fun. But when it comes to Christmas, I find uh, many people's thoughts turn to family gatherings and lavish decorations and uh, frenzied shopping. You've experienced any of that? Yeah? Come on, admit it. Warm thoughts around candles and yummy food, uh, fireplaces and singing songs and yummy food. <laughs> and rightly so. I, uh, it's absolutely all about giving to each other and caring about people, isn't it? Isn't it a wonderful time of year? Just something different in the spirit of Christmas. When I think back to that first Christmas in Bethlehem, I remember the incredible celebration in heaven that was talked about in the Bible. There was a, um, the angels appeared in the sky. There was unrestrained worship. There was, it was absolutely just bedlam going on at the celebration of what was happening in that manger scene. And uh, everyone who was aware was excited. Whether they understood what was going on or not, they knew something special was happening. And it's that way with people today. Even if they are believers, people who don't necessarily believe in God, when they're in God's presence, there's a tangible difference in the spirit of the atmosphere. So I was thinking about the, the reason for the season. I, uh, my thoughts wandered to the origin of this particular celebration. And uh, so tonight I'm going to tell you uh, a different Christmas story. This is um, part of my pilgrimage of going back and looking at what I believe in. I'm in a, in a time of examining what I believe and going back into the Bible to see, is that real or is that something someone told me? And I'm just getting more grounded. I believe it's something God is doing in the body of Christ right now. He's founding us back in the Word of God so that we can be resolute and gracious but firm in what we believe and hold to the truth. So I'm looking at the Bible. I'm going back through it, and we find that the, um, I'm going to tell you the real story of Christmas, and for that we'll need to go back to the, the origin the, in the imagination of God. Did you know God has an imagination? And what he thinks about is absolutely perfect. And when he speaks it, it comes to be. So I'm going to talk about, when we look at the Bible, we find that Jesus really is not a mystery at all, even though many people don't understand things about him. His actual story predates uh, that night in Bethlehem by thousands of years. In fact, there are literally 
I'm not kidding, there's literally volumes of prophetic material in the Bible concerning the coming of the Messiah. Goes, it's over thousands of years, and I couldn't, I couldn't begin to take you through all of it, and I won't try, but as we look back through the history, we see that God provided us a roadmap. And if we retrace the story of Christmas from that night and go back, just to see where it came from, we find some incredible road signs leading back for thousands of years. God foretold various signs and conditions through his prophets. And these prophets spoke of things that we should watch for that, um, so that the Messiah could be recognized and believed. And if people had tracked with the story when Jesus came, they would have been familiar with the person. But so many times it's out of context and we don't pick up on the person. These hundreds of signs and prophecies were given us to, primarily in the Old Testament, over thousands of years, and they're linked to one single human being in history. Now, I'm not a mathematician, so this is, makes no sense to me, but I, I saw this on uh, the Google, <laughs> and so I thought this is really interesting. So those of you who have minds like that, you might understand the things of prophetic nature. There's, a, there's an expectation, for instance, one person fulfilling eight prophecies in his life that were spoken before he was born is estimated to be in the realm of one and a hundred followed by 15 zeros. Now that's just uh, eight prophecies. Now if we take that to 48 prophecies in a person's life, those prophecies, the odds go up to one chance in 10 to the 157th power. Now, I don't get that. I don't think like that. But I, I do know this. I'll just have to take the word for it. But I guess, but we consider that this one person, Jesus, fulfilled over 300 prophecies in his lifetime. In 33 years, the, it's exponential. I can't begin to understand what that would mean for him to be able to fulfill everything that was spoken about the coming Messiah. So there's just too much material to cover, and I'm not going to try to. We don't have the time or the attention span to follow all of that, but you know me, I like to just read stuff like that. So I picked out two examples from the Old Testament we'll talk about tonight. We can handle two, can't we? Yeah, we can get through two. And so I wanted to give credit to where credit is due because there's writers like Zechariah, David, Micah, and others who had an incredible contributions to the prophetic a realm of these 348-something verses that alluded to or spoke specifically about the Messiah. And so for the first one I want to talk about is maybe someone you don't think about when you think about prophetic message about the Messiah, and that's the person of Moses. So um, Moses is the author of the first five books of the Old Testament. And the first book is called Genesis. And it's our foundation, our understanding of the creation and God's first contact with his people. Now, the New Testament tells us, in looking back at that, that the books in the books of John and 1 Peter and Revelation, that before time existed, before anything was created, that the promised one existed. And he existed in communion, in, in company of, in the community of, the Father and the Son and the Spirit were in the Trinity, and we see that he pre-existed creation. And in that community of love, now you got my item itching. <laughs> it's all right. 
something in the air, I guess. In that community of love, this trinity, God began to imagine something. And when God imagines something, it's an incredible, perfect detail before he speaks it. Because when it comes forth in the word, it creates, and it creates something that's perfect. And what he had in his imagination was the thoughts of people who came into view. A people who they imagined would live in the same oneness of fellowship and community that the Holy, that the Holy Spirit and the Son and the Father experience. That these people would come together, that they would love God with all their heart. They would love each other. And that they would build a community in this earth that would expand to cover the earth and they would rule on this planet. And so from out of his imagination, God spoke, the Bible tells us. And his word went forth and a world was created from nothing. In the midst of chaos and darkness, something emerged that was magnificent. And at the center of this world, in this little place, was a garden of perfection and peace. And God put man there. And in a certain order, he created other things of which man was also created. And so in the days that followed, man was created, and for a time, all was well, until it wasn't. And Moses tells us there was something dark uh, lurking in the shadows of this world. It was, had, it was the, Bible tells us the rebellious one, the accuser, the, a liar, had been cast into the darkness of this world, and had found his way into the garden, and somehow had begun a dialogue with God's children. Now, what follows in the Genesis account is a conversation between Satan and God's people. And through deceit and lies, Satan was able to lead them into disobeying God's commands. And they fell into what is called sin. Their very nature was changed. And with this one act of rebellion, all of their God-given authority and rule over this planet was given to a new prince. And they fell captive to this new ruler. And it seemed that all was lost. From all appearances, it seemed that God's perfect dream had been thwarted. Or had it? You see, before time, God had viewed the future and foreseen all that would happen. And he was not surprised or taken back by this disaster. And in his great mercy... God devised a plan that not only would rescue man from this fallen nature, but would also rescue this planet and reestablish us and rule over this world. The Genesis 3 account that Moses wrote tells of something called the fall. And it's, it's, this is when the curse of sin came on man and Satan and woman. And the Lord spoke something in this account that would almost go unnoticed, but for one thing. Let me read part of this to you. This is the Lord addressing the serpent who had deceived the man and woman. He says, because you've done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. 
And so, in essence, there would be a war for all of time between this, this, the influence of this prince of this world and woman, the offspring of this woman. And he continues by saying this, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This was a prophetic message of the coming of the, of the, of the Savior. How many of you learned, though, that um, man's, God's plan is always greater than man's failure? God determined to enter into time to position himself as a, a flesh and blood person and to come and through an innocent life offer himself as a sacrifice and undo the curse of the first Adam as the second Adam. He would restore mankind back to the Father in this act. Now, in this Genesis 3 passage, I want you to know God wasted no time in moving on this and establishing something different than what had happened. He immediately moved, and he says, he, uh, Moses tells us in Genesis 3.21 that Yahweh God made garments from animal skins to clothe Adam and Eve. This is the first death in history. And from this act, the Lord actually gifted man with the first sacrifice to cover his nakedness. He killed an innocent animal and then robed this naked couple, covering their shame and their prophetic roadmap continued on down through history. Now this prophetic, prophetic act would one day um, become an eternal reality in the sacrifice of the first innocent man, this, this promised one named Jesus. And following on the heels of this message, Moses hinted at someone who would come in history and change everything. In Genesis 49, he says, the prophetic language here says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants, until the coming of the one to whom it belongs. Now Moses had no inclination or understanding what he was speaking, but prophetically he was speaking something that was a mystery. But we know now that this, is, this was Jesus himself. And the one to whom it belongs would be the one whom all nations will honor. He ties his foal to a grapevine, the colt of his donkey, to a choice vine. He washes his clothes in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes, and his eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth are whiter than milk. This was his picture of the coming promised one. Now jump forward with me to about the 8th century B.C., where we find our second prophet in this whole line leading up to this baby. It's in the roadmap of God. And this is the prophet Isaiah. The book of Isaiah is one of four major prophetic books, including um, also Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Now, chapter 7 of Isaiah was written about 735 B.C., and the fulfillment of this prophecy can be found in Matthew 1.18. It was the culmination of that prophecy. In Isaiah 7, it says, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will name him Emmanuel, which means God among us. Two chapters later in Isaiah 9, we see a prophetic mention of this promised one when Isaiah tells us, No more gloom for those who are in distress. And although the Lord greatly humbled the regions 
of Zebulun and Naphtali, he will one day bestow upon them great honor. From the Mediterranean eastward to the other side of the Jordan and throughout the Galilee of the Gentiles. He starts talking about the place where Jesus would grow up. Those who walked in darkness have seen a radiant light shining upon them. And they once lived in the shadows of death, but now a glorious light has dawned. This is a prophetic message about the coming of Jesus. And in verse 6 and 7, he says again, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and in parentheses, Bob's notes say, and he will be God's greatest gift, and he will be ours. And the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. He spoke of an eternal king, one that would rule forever. But of all the prophetic words spoken by Isaiah, my favorite, the one that's for me most, it's breathtaking when I read it, it's very meaningful, is in Isaiah 53. Let me read that for you. This is um, who the the Christmas baby would become. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected. as a man of sorrows, acquainted with the deepest grief. We turned our back on him and looked the other way. He was despised, and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins, but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole, and he was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We've left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep he is silent before his shearers. He did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, and that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and never had deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave, but it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. Now that's a, that's a picture, a descriptive prophetic picture of the suffering that Jesus went through, that he would come and endure. And every time I read this, my heart is gripped with his magnificence, his tenderness, and 
what an incredible God he is. He would come and give himself to this kind of pain. In the last two verses of the New Testament, both Paul and John close our thoughts on the promised one. I want to read these two verses and we'll be done. But these are the thoughts of two apostles who wrote much of the New Testament. And one is about, speaks to our past and how it's been dealt with. This is, this is Paul. And he speaks of Jesus. He said he canceled out every legal violation we had on our record. And the old arrest warrant that stood to indict us. He erased it all. Our sins, our stained soul, he deleted it all and they cannot be retrieved. Everything we once were in Adam has been placed onto his cross and nailed permanently there as a public display of cancellation. That's what he dealt with. John, the apostle, had this to say not about our past but about our future and what is before us and what we have in our own understanding is to walk away and turn away from that past and embrace for the future. And this is the Apostle John. The one who existed from the beginning is the one we have seen and heard. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is Jesus Christ, the word of life. This one who is life from God has shown us and we have seen him. And now we testify and announce to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father, and then he was shown to us. We're telling you about what we ourselves have actually seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So tonight as we consider Christmas and what it's become to us, and we think about the baby Jesus and, and we gravitate toward the, the wonderful things that happen. Let's remember what he came for. What a wonderful gift he is to us. He was the promised one for all eternity. God knew that we would need him desperately. Not just for our salvation, but for every day of our lives so we could live as spirit-filled beings. So I want to pray for us that this will be a season where this is more than it's been in the past. It would be meaningful. We'd actually find ourselves caught up in something of the Spirit and be able to engage God's heart about what it means to receive this gift. So let me pray. Father, I thank you for Christmas. I thank you for this season. I thank you for all the, the foolishness and the fun that we have and all the things that this means that are really good. Thank you for our families, for our memories. Thank you for what this has become. And Lord, even with all the materialism, it's a grand time. And we thank you for that. But most of all, we thank you for the greatest gift that could be given. And that's that you didn't forget us. You didn't turn your back on us as we did with you. And you forgave us our sin and you came to set us free to live a new life. And tonight, we just take a moment to thank you from our hearts and remember you, Jesus, that you came as a child so that you could be a man of destiny, a man of sacrifice, 
an innocent man who would die for our sins. And we just, our, our hearts warm to you, and we are arrested by your spirit. And we say that we love you, and we celebrate you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.